0: Thank you for listening to the FBH Podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Good morning, church. How we doing? Oh, man, I don't know. You sat like you're like, "I need to make noise here. Obligatory me making noise. Can you guys just uh, welcome those of us joining online so they can hear you? Good morning, church. There we go. Better, better. Um, also, when that video ends, I always like it, it ends really abruptly, and I'm like, man, let's, let's, it's ready to watch a movie, but then I have to preach after that, so it's not as exciting for me as that thing. Got. Anyway, my name is Peter. We'll go with that. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and we are glad that you're with us, whether you are in person or if you're joining us online. We're just grateful uh, that you're here. And we're continuing on in this series called Into the Wilderness, so we're going to be uh, tracking through Exodus chapters 1 and 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open there. You can click open there. Uh, we'll have those things on the screen as well. But this series is going to take us in and through uh, summertime. And uh, while the, the front half of Exodus, a lot of us kind of know the stories, right? We're talking about Moses and that sort of thing. The back half, there's a lot of meat there that we kind of uh, we, we aren't as familiar with. So we're excited to, uh, to get through that, um, but uh, but even as we get into this the second week in this series, uh, it really is some of the first of the real stories of Exodus. Uh, as we are, like I said, in chapters chapters one and and two today. And so as you're flipping there, uh, just real quick, some of you know this, we have, so we have five boys. um, And uh, the youngest of those five boys, all of you have tuned me out, you're like, five boys, that's ridiculous. Okay, so the youngest, it's about him, not how crazy our life is, okay. Um, So the youngest of our five boys, his name is Noah. And Noah is the cutest, blondest kid you've ever seen. I have no clue where he came from because Sarah and I both have brown hair. But Uh, He also, Noah, about a year and a half ago, we noticed that one of his eyes was kind of starting to drift a little bit. We're like, hmm, that's not good. So we ended up taking him to an eye doctor, right? He's three cutest eye doctor appointment I've ever been to. Um, and so I, I had him on my lap and, and they have um, him not look at like letters, like you and I would go and we would look at letters and that sort of thing and say the letters. We would, we went and they have like little kids look at, at pictures, right? So they have like car, tree, train, like different things like that. And they start with this good eye. And so he's sitting on my lap and it was like, a car would show up and be like, car, boom, like nailed it. And I was like, that's right, let's go, right? And like, then tree would come up and he'd be like, tree. And i was like, let's go, three-year-old, you're so smart, right? And so I'm super proud of him and all those things. And then they switch it to his bad eye. And then I got a taste of humble pie um, because like they would put tree up and you could tell, he's like a high school student that, uh, that didn't study for a test. Right, because like tree would come up, and he knew that like car was in there somewhere, so he just wrote car or said car. So like people would, like like I know the answer's supposed to be here, so I'm just gonna throw that one out there and see how it goes. Didn't go so well on the uh, on the bad eye necessarily. So Noah has glasses, and he does his best to kind of strengthen some of those muscles and and that sort of thing. But but. So for him, while that test has different uh, shapes and different things, you know, like that, uh, we use what's called the Snellen chart, okay? So all of those letters, that's called the Snellen chart. I never knew this, um, but, uh, but it's an eye chart, and it measures our visual acuity, Right So, how well that you can see, so somebody with twenty twenty vision uh, we said they have good eyesight it's actually just normal eyesight. The rest of us just have bad eyesight, okay, so twenty twenty vision means you have good normal acuity, okay, and those you know uh, uh, um, so what happens, and the question becomes, what happens then if you have 20-40 vision? Well, now that person's acuity is worse. So the letters um, that they see clearly at a distance of 20 feet, someone with a normal acuity of 20-20 vision could see uh, those letters with just as much clarity at 40 feet, right? So their vision is almost twice as good as the other, other person. Anyway, the, the, the point of all of that um, is that somebody with 20-20 vision has good Eyesight, okay, they, they are able to see clearly. And usually when we talk about 2020 vision, we always pair it with this idea of hindsight, right? This idea that, like, as I look backwards, I can see perfectly clear. I can understand what things kind of led to where we are today. Okay, we have to recognize that that our hindsight is 2020. Okay we recognize that because of the fact that there was oppression and taxation without representation America ultimately rebelled and became its own nation right like hindsight is 2020 for us in that as we watch history or as we study history and that sort of thing like we recognize what it is that's going on okay so while our hindsight is 2020 for the sake of the story this morning we need to recognize that actually God's foresight is 2020 Okay, God seeing forward is actually 2020, meaning in this story we're going to be looking at today. Okay? Even though we are familiar with it, even though a lot of us know it, and even though we know what to expect as we read through it, God knew what was going down from the very beginning. Okay, so And this is the same for each, for each and every one of us. Okay, God knows what is going down in your life before it actually goes down. He knows what is going to happen. He knows how it is going to happen. He knows why it is going to happen. So think about your present circumstances, all of you. Think about your present circumstances. Okay, whether it be a relationship, a job, school, whatever it is. Your present circumstances that you find yourself in. Okay, the situations happening in your life. God knows how each and every one of those things are going to play out in your life already. Okay, this is, this is God's attribute. It's one of God's attributes. His, his omniscience is what it's called. Hey, God, this is this all-knowing idea. Omniscient means having knowledge of all things, universal knowledge. This is one of God's attributes that we can't have, okay? unless you're like in junior high and you're talking with your parents. In that case, that you know all things because you're always right. Yeah, but omniscience, like we can't get that, okay? This is a non-transferable attribute in that case. Omniscience means having knowledge of all things. The word comes from two Latin roots. It comes from omnis, which means all, and scientia, which uh, means knowledge. Scientia is the same word that we get our English word, of course, science from, Okay, so God is omniscient, and God, because of the fact that he knows all things, he's already working behind the scenes to make his name glorified in the midst of whatever it is that you're walking through. So regardless of your circumstances, he knows it all, and he is going to be glorified in your circumstances. So God is all-knowing, and because of that, we find ourselves, like in those situations, we, we are moving towards his glory. And that's what he does with the Israelite people over and over and over again. So we're going to take a look at Exodus 1. We're going to start in verse 8. We got a lot of ground to cover today, okay? So we're going to start in verse 8. It says this, then a new king, we'll get to that in a second, okay? Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, He said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Okay, so last week... Last week we talked about it was verses 1 through 7 really the end of the end of the book of Genesis right we have Joseph and his multicolored dream coat right he moves all of the Israelites to Egypt and they're settled there they're peaceful there things are good there but God has something greater for them there so we ended last week and they're just kind of existing in Egypt Okay, there's nothing great really happening, but nothing bad is happening either, right? Kind of a life that a lot of people would probably choose, but God has promises for them, right? God promised greater things uh, to them, and they were settled under this old Pharaoh, right? Joseph, remember, Joseph came in, Joseph in his coat, he came in, and he was the second, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, and there was a famine, and he handled the famine, and he did all of these things, and so, so Pharaoh then blessed Joseph's family. It was like, hey, you're just going to be peaceful. You're going to live here, and it's all good. Well, then somewhere between 200, 250 and 400 years goes by. Okay, the way it reads is, it's like a new Pharaoh came, right? Verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph knew nothing. Like the way it sounds like was like the old king died, and then there was a new king, and no time had passed. Actually, uh, the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus people would say between 250 and 400 years have gone by. So to give you context, if it's over, if it's, if it's more towards the, the 300 to 400 range, right? Like America wouldn't even have existed then. Okay, think back to how far that actually is. Think back to some of the historical figures maybe that, that you know, that you're like, ah, they're not that important. Ah, what did they really do. Like you can't blame the new king necessarily for not understanding what it was that went down or, or who it was that Joseph uh, is and represented. Okay, so 250 to 400 years has gone by since the death of Joseph. Okay, Joseph, Joseph's important to Egypt had just simply been lost through time. So in this new pharaoh, A lot of people believe it was a guy by the name of Ramses II. Again, we can't verify that. We can speculate on that because of some of the different things that are going on. But we don't have an actual timeline, so that's the best that we can get to. Okay, Either way, though, this guy, this new king, this new pharaoh, he does not like the Israelites. And he doesn't like them for two reasons. Okay, It actually tells us why he doesn't like them in verses 9 and 10. The first reason uh, that he doesn't like them is because it threatens his way of life. Yeah, let's read back through it again. It says, uh, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. He's fearful. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. His way of life is threatened here. Okay, so he doesn't like the Israelites for that reason, that, that his way of life was threatened. But the second reason that he does not like the Israelites is because he has no clue about what happened before him. Hey, he doesn't know his history. He doesn't know where he came from. He doesn't know what happened in Egypt between 250 and 400 years ago, when Joseph delivered all of, his, all of even the Egyptians from that famine. He hasn't read up on it. Hey, look at verse eight. It even says, "A new king, and then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Came to pass. So Joseph, his history, the history of the Egyptian people as a mesh with the Israelite people, he knew nothing of Joseph. And because of the fact that he didn't educate himself, he ended up hating an entire group of people. Sound familiar? Let's keep pushing through. So this Pharaoh thinks the best way to handle this group of people is to deal shrewdly with them. Makes sense, right? So people, I'm scared of people, so I'm going to be mean to those people, apparently. Okay, this, is take, this takes us through Exodus 1, verses 11 through 22. We can't hit every single verse because we got to push through, um, but I'm going to hit some high points for you. Go back and read this section because there's some really, really cool things that happen here. But Pharaoh's going to try three different things, three different ways to try to break the will of the Israelite people. So here we go. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Love this piece of scripture right here. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The longer they were in lockdown, the more babies were had, right? Like, whatever it is, if you want to make that metaphor for modern day, I don't know. Okay, but love that. Hey, we're going to oppress them harder. And Israel's like, we got nothing else to do. Let's make some babies. So, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and, and, and worked them ruthlessly. So, let's deal harshly. Let's deal harshly with these people and they'll stop multiplying. They'll stop spreading out. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread out. So that didn't work. Okay, first thing, deal shrewdly. Map nah, didn't work. So then Pharaoh gets an idea. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Okay, fine. They want to keep multiplying? We'll just just take care of it after they're done multiplying. I'll make it impossible actually for them to do so. But I don't want it to be obvious. Okay, I don't want it to be obvious. So while the baby is being born, right? If it's a boy, kill the boy. Yeah, that doesn't work either, though, because we have some awesome midwives here who were who were Hebrew and they feared the Lord, is what it says in verse 17. So they actually, they lie to Pharaoh here, right? And they, they tell him that those Hebrew women are vigorous. And man, they pop those babies out so quick, there's no way we can get to those, those babies in time. Sorry, Pharaoh. And there's actually a really fascinating tension here because God ends up blessing those midwives for preserving the Hebrew children. But for, for the, the understanding of this passage, we, we can pull this idea that the midwives were actually lying to Pharaoh, So God is blessing somebody who is actually being sinful. So we don't have time to get into it now, but you can talk about that over lunch. I'm sure that's what you'll be talking about over lunch. So. God actually blesses those midwives because of it. So at this point, Pharaoh, has, he's tried hard labor, okay? He's tried to discreetly get rid of, uh, of those babies, uh, but neither of those things are working out, so he just decides to get pretty bold in verse 22. Verse 22 says this, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So Pharaoh at this point is like, forget it okay? We're not just going to be shrewd. We're not just going to try to kill babies right when they're being born. If the baby does get born, I want you to take that baby boy and throw it into the river, okay? He gets very, very bold here. He is oppressing these people harshly here, okay? So all of this is happening, and what we're actually seeing here, for you superhero movie nerds, superhero movie nerds, anybody in the room, right? Falcon and the Winter Soldier, anybody? No? Cool. So, we, we are seeing here, though, the origin story of Moses. We are seeing where Moses actually comes from. All of these things, because of all of these things, because of the fact they're dealing, being dealt shrewdly with, because of the fact that, that babies are discreetly being killed and then babies are boldly being killed, God is going to use all of this to put a new leader in place. He's going to use all of this to, to put Moses into place. Everything from the midwives to Pharaoh to the harsh labor—all of this stuff—God is going to use to glorify Himself. Why? Because God is all-knowing; His foresight is twenty-twenty. So, uh, we open after. Uh, we, now we're going to open up to chapter two. Okay, in chapter two, we finally meet a guy by the name of Moses. It's Exodus two one and following. So it says this, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Okay, press pause. You Old Testament history nerds are going to pick up on this idea of Levites, okay? The tribe of Levi, Levi, this is a priestly tribe, okay? A lot of us would be like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the or some of us, would that's the, that's the tribe that all of the priests come from. However, while this is an interesting nugget, the, Le, the Levite tribe is not established as a priestly tribe until later on. Okay, so while some of you are like, oh, Moses was a priest. No, he was not, because that's not ordained till later on, but still fascinating. Verse 2, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay, pause again. That word fine right there in verse 2, okay, that's the same word that actually uh, is used to describe Joseph by Potiphar's wife, okay, earlier on in Genesis. So again, Think back to Joseph, right? Joseph, he's in, the, he's in Pharaoh's castle, um, and it felt like it was like a Mario Bowser thing there. Um, anyway, he's in Pharaoh's castle, and Potiphar's wife's like, hey, you're a fine-looking man. Same word is used. This is a good-looking, well-put-together, well-built child. Okay, verse three. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, this is Moses' sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. Okay, we see Pharaoh's daughter here. Oftentimes we're like, oh, Pharaoh's daughter, only child, right? Like direct line to Pharaoh. Most people believe Pharaoh had between like 60 and 80 offspring, okay? Just to give you a little bit more context. So this is probably a little bit further removed from Pharaoh than a lot of us tend to think that it is, okay? But let's keep going, okay? So sent a female slave to get that basket. Verse six, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. Shocker, he was floating in reeds. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. Again, Moses' sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Time out. If I don't stop, here for a second, my wife's going to be upset at me because this is her favorite part of this entire story, that in God's, God's omniscience, him knowing everything, him knowing how all of this stuff is going to work out, okay? God is like, hey, or, th- or th- this lady's like, hey, do uh, you, you want me to, I don't know, I'll just find some Hebrew lady for this baby to, to nurse with, and God's like, yeah, hey, how about, how about you take the baby's mom, and actually, uh, she's going to get paid to do it as well, Right? Some of you moms out there who like nurse babies for years on end, you're like, I wish I got paid to nurse my baby. But uh, verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for, you, for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Man, baby reunited with mom. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and, and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, So let's get back to Moses' backstory here, okay? So because of the fact that Pharaoh was forcing babies to get killed, Moses was hidden until he couldn't be hidden anymore. He gets put into a basket, and God uses Pharaoh's own decree to help keep Moses safe by allowing him to grow up under Pharaoh's protection, Hey, this is one of my favorite, I, the, the irony here is ridiculous. Pharaoh's like, hey, we're going to kill all the babies, but we found this baby, so I'm going to protect him. All the while, this is going to be the leader of the Israelite people. This is going to be the guy that ultimately delivers the Israelites from underneath Egypt's reign. A okay, Pharaoh is actively protecting him, and not only is Pharaoh actively protecting him, his mom also gets to raise him. He gets to grow up with his family. Okay, again, Pharaoh's daughter returns Moses to his own mom. That's cra- it's absolutely crazy to me. So at least for a while, he gets to learn about his Hebrew heritage, like his Israelite heritage. And then when he's older, he goes and lives with Pharaoh's daughter and, and, and learns about the Egyptian heritage. So Moses really is kind of in a unique position here. He understands both sides. Someone pr- protected by Pharaoh, raised by his parents, most likely to learn about both of these cultures. And God is sitting in the background, waiting for all of this to happen until a decision needs to be made by Moses. Is Moses going to live a life of comfort as an Egyptian, or is he going to embrace his Israelite heritage? Okay, this comes to a head when he actually kills an Egyptian to protect an Israelite. Ultimately he flees, Moses gets married, and he has a kid. Okay, that takes us all the way through chapter 2 verse 22. Okay, so I know we're diving deep into the story. We're getting glazed. Lean back in with me for just a second. Okay, Exodus 2 verses 23 and 25, 23 to 25. It says, during that long period the king of Egypt died the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So this entire backstory goes down. Everything is piling up. And in verse 25, it says that God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. But here's the deal. So we look at this and we're thinking like, oh yeah, here comes Moses' Moses' backstory. Yeah, Moses is about to erupt onto the scene, but one thing that we often forget is while all of this is playing out, from baby all the way to Moses having his own kid to living for 40 plus years in a town called Midian and getting prepared before his actual call at the beginning of chapter 3, the Israelites know nothing about it. God is radio silent except for that one time that he blessed the midwives. They don't Know what's happening they don't know deliverance is close they have absolutely no clue all they know is toil and shrewd labor and their children getting killed that's all they know at this point for us hindsight's twenty twenty. we can see what's about to go down we understand that moses is about to arrive on the scene but as far as everyone else is concerned no one knows about this moses is nobody to no one at this point no one knows about him. That's it. That's their lives. They have no leader to speak of. We don't hear about God doing anything. Radio silence, just more time when his promises are not being fulfilled. And I'm assuming that you've felt that way before. I'm assuming at some point you have been there thinking to yourself like, or even saying out loud to yourself, God, where are you right now? Where are you in my life right now? Why aren't you doing anything? My life is in shambles. I could really use a break here, God. Or my life is just, man, it's just the same story on repeat over and over and over again. God, where are you working? Why aren't you moving? I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't hear you. Where are you? I'm sure the Israelites cried out in the same way. Like, God, you have promised us. You promised us to deliver us. We're your people where are you? And so the question becomes, when when we can't see God working, when we can't feel God moving, when we don't hear him, when all we have in front of us is either the mundane or the miserable, what is it that we are supposed to do? Where is God working? How are we supposed to operate at that point. Because the Israel, Israelites, like it said, it said that the Israelites simply cried out to God and he heard them. Their groanings were heard by God and he heard them. And I think there's something we need to be willing to, to pull from that. I think that, that, that in our lives, when we don't see God moving, we assume nothing's happening. When we don't see God moving, we, we assume that, that God is simply not working know we can even go one step further and assume maybe because I don't feel God moving or I don't see God's work in my life that he's abandoned me or maybe I feel like hey God doesn't doesn't love me obviously and so because that I'm out forget about church God doesn't bless me enough it doesn't seem like he's holding up his end of the bargain so why would I want to stick around in that case to which I would say I have two responses to that. The first response I have to that is we need to remember that God owes us nothing. God owes us absolutely nothing. For some reason, we tend to get it into our heads that we like this idea that because we've entered into this relationship with God, that now we're owed something for some reason. Like because we acknowledge him, he's gonna give us an easy life with blessing upon blessing. Right? Karma's not biblical. Stop assuming it is. Like, God, God doesn't take away blessings because, like, you sinned one time. That's not how it works. And God also isn't going to bless you abundantly simply because you said your prayers this morning. Like, because you're at church today, don't expect someone to pay your tab at Panera later. It's not how it works. Like, if they do, great, and say thank you. But that's not how it works. It's simply not true. God owes us nothing. The reality is actually in Scripture, the majority of people that we encounter, the majority of the people that we see following along with God, following along closely with God, usually have pretty difficult lives. Their lives aren't easy. Their lives are good, but their lives are not easy. Think about any of the 12 disciples, any one of them. Okay? Because of the fact that they encountered Jesus, their lives were made more difficult, not only on earth, but after, like, not only when Jesus was on earth, but after he ascended. And then they brought, you know, they brought this message of the gospel to the very ends of the earth, at least as far as they knew the ends of the earth. The vast majority of them were killed, like, brutal death. Peter was crucified upside down. People were tar and feathered, dismembered. Right? The only one who made it out was John, and even he, he was just like banished. Right? Their lives got harder because of their encounter with Jesus. Look at the prophets. You want to go Old Testament? Look at the prophets. Man, nobody liked the prophets. And nobody liked the prophets because they were sinning. They weren't honoring God. They're like, hey, if you don't honor God, judgment is coming, and then judgment would come, and then they would have the audacity to get mad at the prophets for them telling the truth. Over and over and over again. God owes us nothing. And your life, while it will be better, it will be more difficult. It will be better, but it will be more difficult. So again, God owes us nothing. The second thing we we need to remember, though, is that God wants, though, even though he owes us nothing, he wants nothing more than to deliver us from captivity. That's the second piece. This is the buildup here that we have to chapter three and beyond in Exodus. Okay, this is as true today as it was back then. No matter the pain and suffering that you're going through right now. God has promised to deliver you from your struggle. He may not deliver you out of that trial, right? If you're drowning in debt right now, God may not just say, hey, bank error in your favor, I took care of it. Chances are he's simply going to walk you through that debt and that struggle Maybe he'll bless you and deliver you. Great. But chances are, is that he's simply going to walk through that with you. He may not deliver you out of the trial, but he will definitely deliver you through that trial, right? It tells us that God is for us. It tells us that God wants to deliver us. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? And God, God is for us. Hebrews thirteen five. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is for us. God wants to deliver us. God wants to deliver you in the same way that God was about to deliver the Hebrew people. So even when your world feels upside down, when it feels messed up, when you feel like you cannot get a win regardless of what it is you try to do, remember that your troubles are temporary and God is working in the background whether you know it or not. God has twenty twenty foresight. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen is eternal. God, in the midst of this story in Exodus, is just working and maneuvering in a way that the Israelites cannot see. So whatever it is that's going on in your life, know that God is going to use that to glorify himself. God is going to use that to, to make his name known, even when you cannot see it. Our responsibility is to continue to fix our eyes on God. In the same way that Israel has just groaned out, they cried out to God. Where Corinthians tells us that we need to fix our eyes on what is not seen, the eternal it's like every single sports analogy you could ever think of. Want to hit the ball? Look at it. You want to not hit a slice in golf? Look at the ball. Keep your head down. Or at least that's what my dad yelled at me every single time. Keep your head down. Sorry, I want to swing harder. Right? Football, you want to catch it? Look at what you're trying to catch. Basketball, you want to make it? Look at the back of the rim. Right? Right? And then practice a whole lot. It's not that simple. Okay, but every sports analogy ever talks about the idea like we need to focus, like when we look at something, when we continue to fix our eyes on something, that's when we connect with it. And sometimes we can see it and sometimes we can't see it. And that's when the idea of obedience comes in, of waking up every single day over and over and over again and saying yes to God choosing every single day to say yes to God. What would it look like if the church decided to focus our eyes on the eternal rather than on the temporal? Will we actually offer peace to a world that knows nothing but turmoil? We would probably stop offering band-aid solutions to problems that actually and, and actually be able to explain to our society that because of the fact that we are broken because of the fact that man is sinful our society is messed up because of sin and nothing else it's because of sin and nothing else and the only way to combat to combat evil in society is with Jesus the eternal our deliverer who continues to work even when we do not see him that's how it works that's his omniscience he will be glorified Whatever it is that we are going through, he will be glorified in the midst of it. And he continues to work behind the scenes. So let's fix our eyes on the eternal and trust that he's working. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm, thank- man, I'm thankful, Lord, for your word. I'm thankful for your people. I'm thankful for this church. And God, I'm thankful for stories like the book of Exodus, the history of your people. And the metaphors that we're able to pull from them, that we learn about your character, God, in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And because of the fact that you don't change, we can apply those same truths to our lives about your character. That you're unchanging, that you're a promise keeper, that you're omniscient. God, that you are working even when we can't see you working. So God, I don't know where every single person in this room is at today. I don't know if they're in the midst of the mundane or the miserable. I don't know, Father. God, but we recognize that you are working. And even when we can't see it, you're working. And you're working to make your name glorified. So God, I pray that in our lives we would do our best to glorify you. To help you in that glory. To help those people in our world see your glory. And that we would just be willing to trust that we are in the midst of these circumstances for a reason that you are working behind the scenes and you're going to be glorified. And Father, for those maybe who have who've not said yes to you, who, who are waiting for, man, that deliverance, that God, you, you want to deliver us from evil. You want to deliver us from our sin. You want to deliver us from an eternity apart from you. For those people who have not said yes to that deliverance, who have not said yes to Jesus, and with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, you can pray along with me if you want to say yes to Jesus this morning. In the quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need deliverance. But B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross for me so I would be delivered every single day for the rest of eternity. And C, that I would choose to follow you with my life, that I would wake up in the morning and say, Yes to serving you. Yes to doing my best to glorify your name forever. Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.